we can all agree Carolina is the best Bible reader ever. Oh my goodness. Yeah, my goodness. That's it. From here, no more Bible readings. We're done. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Andrew's not here. I'm kidding. Carolina, beautiful. You should hear her read it in Spanish. That's next level. Guys, um, how, how awesome that we get to look at the Bible together um, and, uh, and hear what it is that God has to say to us. I'm going to pray um, that we would apply our minds and our hearts to what God is saying today. Would you bow your heads and, and let me pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness that you are a speaking God. Um, and we pray for your Spirit's work in our hearts and our minds and our ears um, so that we may hear from you uh, as you speak. We may not be distracted um, by the things of this world, but rather uh, listen, hear, and change. Uh, grow in our love for you uh, and in our likeness of your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, several years ago, there was an enormous worldwide survey um, taken out, uh, uh, which, which um, asked people of specific religions questions uh, about uh, their faith, uh, and it had a special section for Christians, as you can imagine. Now, respondents were invited to answer the following question, and I'm going to ask it, and then I'm going to give you the opportunity, just inside your mind, um, to see what it is that you would say. Here is the question that, uh, that the participants were asked to answer. What does being a Christian mean to you? How would you answer and if you're not a Christian, how do you think Christians should answer? The answers were interesting. Uh, at the top, and you could choose a list of responses. You could choose as many as you want. At the top, 86% of our respondents said belief in God. That's good. I do wonder about the 14%, though, of Christians who are not that big on the God thing. But nonetheless, you've got 86%. After that, the next, the next four down were generosity, um, uh, treating others as you'd like to be treated, prayer, um, and loving your family. Uh, of course, that's, that's very, these are wonderful things uh, for us to grab hold of as Christians and, and to pursue in our lives. But I wonder if you've noticed what's missing so far. Um, all the way, there's only 10 answers, at number eight uh, was this answer. Uh, salvation through Jesus. 11% of the surveyed respondents ticked that box. 11% identified the, the death of Jesus, the salvation that he offers, as critical to their Christian faith. Why do you think that is? I want to suggest that um, it's, it's, it's a disappointing result, but not a surprising one. The vast majority of people that you've ever met, that you know right now, um, believe that Christianity at its very core uh, is all about behavior, morality, actions. And they think it for the good or the bad. They either think, oh, Christians are nice people who do good things, or they think Christians are bigots who are evil, you know, whatever. But they all think it's about behavior, what you do, belief in God, certainly, but what you do is the crucial contingent of the Christian faith. But it's not just out in the wider community, is it? It's also, it's also within people who call themselves Christians. Many, many people who call themselves Christians also would hold to actions, behavior, um, works, uh, as, at a minimum, an equal part of their salvation and their continued walk uh, as Christians. Um, that what matters most is what they do. Um, that, that is um, widespread, regardless of denomination and regardless of... This is just uh, what many, many people who think 
who call themselves Christians think about Christianity. The key question for us to work out and get to the bottom of is, is that true? Uh, Is that true? You can obviously, I hope, sense that. I don't think it is, but what do you think? What does the Bible say more importantly? Um, This week, I'm really uh, uh, thrilled to uh, have the privilege of of looking at the final part of Hebrews uh, that we've been looking at this term and uh, last year uh, as well. What a wonderful blessing it's been to look at this incredible book, isn't it? Um, And if you were with us last week, you will have seen that Hebrews 13, which we started on last week, um, is different to the other 12 chapters. 12 chapters of Hebrews are really up high in the heavens, uh, detailing in great um, depth and richness Um, the realities of the truth of Jesus and and Christianity. Um, Whereas when we get to chapter 13, it's almost as if this is, uh, in fact, I would say it is as if this is now the application of all those truths into our lives. In other words, this is what Christianity is. And now chapter 13, this is how you are to live in response to those things. However, the thing is about chapter 13, it's very possible on a surface level Um, to look at what it says, which are a set of commands and directions for the Christian life, and come up with the idea that this is verifying a works-based concept of Christianity. That as long as I follow this seemingly disconnected set of commands and and rules, then I will be okay with God. So I just need to follow uh, what this chapter says. However, what I want to say is that That uh, is an erroneous looking at at Hebrews 13. And more to the point, when you actually investigate closely what's going on in this incredible chapter, you get to see a thread emerge all the way through, a a chain, if you like, connecting everything. I want to suggest to you that these are not, more than suggest, I want to offer to you that these are not a, a disparate, disconnected set of orders and commands for Christian people to get right with God, but rather part of something much bigger, connected together very, very firmly and strongly. And when you see that connection, you see that thread weaving its way throughout, it changes everything. Not just about how you read this chapter, but also how you think about life itself. So what I want us to do today um, is we're going to have a look at some of these commands, some of these um, uh, directions for Christian living that Hebrews 13 gives us, think about how they play themselves out in their lives, but then consider what the thread is. Consider the thread weaving its way throughout um, and, um, and then tie them together and see how, uh, how we live and how it's all connected plays itself out uh, in the bigger picture of our lives and life for everyone. So come to me to uh, Hebrews 13. Have that open in front of you if you have it. Um, and, and I'm going to point out three things, three of the directions we, we looked at and we just had read to us from, from chapter 13. Um, we're going to look at leadership, at teaching, and at sacrifices. Let me start with leadership. You see there in verse 7, at uh, the very beginning of the reading, we've got uh, a comment here about leaders, remembering leaders, and that's talking about leaders of the Hebrew church who are no longer uh, there in the church, they either died or moved away. Now, there's much in there. They should be remembered. Their lives emulated. They spoke the word of God. But I want you to come to verse 17. Now, verse 17 has got another comment on leadership. And let me read this out for you. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no benefit to you. Now there's consequences here for not just uh, those who are led, but also for those who lead. 
The leaders in question here are pastors and ministers at church. In the local church you're a member of, if you're a member of Fiat, this is the pastoral team here at church. For those who are led by the leaders, what are we told? Well, we're told to trust them. To trust in their intentions, to trust in the direction by which they are leading the church, and to willingly put yourself under their authority, their decisions, uh, and, and, and to follow Now, that is not a call to trust in autocratic um, bullying and spiritual abuse. And it's certainly not a call never to question anything that's said whatsoever. Make no mistake, uh, you can question everything that happens. Uh, And I invite you to do it. It's a wonderful part of a church family is that we get to talk about and and, and ask questions of one another and certainly uh, of church uh, leaders. However, I think the passage is making it clear that It's not questioning that's the problem. It's having the attitude of questioning everything by virtue of just, I'm going to question everything. Second-guessing every decision. Having the the thrust of your mind being that these leaders are taking us down to a bad part, feeling that way instinctively rather than the opposite. That's to be avoided. Try to think of yourself as a blessing to your leaders, not not a curse. Try not to be a burden, try to be a delight and a joy. However, there's also directions here for leaders. You see it here. Verse 7, leaders need to speak the word of God. Verse 17, they need to be worthy of your trust. They need to be worthy of your submission to their authority. Why? Well, the charge of the leader is to keep watch over you, like a shepherd with sheep, uh, to protect you spiritually as those who must give an account. Leaders have a very clear outcome in mind. A good Christian leader should never be about bringing people to themselves, but rather, like a shepherd with sheep, guiding people to the great shepherd, to God. Now, that has direct correlation, of course, with the second thing I want to point out to you, which is teaching. Have a look at at verse 9. We've got a very uh, specific direction and the connection here of course is that well teaching is what leaders do is primarily one of the great ways that leaders lead. Look at verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Strange is a wonderful word here. It's kind of it does mean weird but more than just meaning weird it means wrong. Don't be carried away by wrong teaching and the teaching in question here is about um, ceremonial foods. Uh, It might seem strange because we don't engage in that kind of thing. However, in most religions around the world, there is a deep spiritual connection with food and drink. You are told to eat particular things or not to eat other things. Specifically for the Hebrew church, this was probably about um, Judaism, Jewish uh, ceremonial food, but also potentially about some of the local religions and their sort of foods offered to sacrifices. The idea of all this thing, the aesthetic version of spirituality, that what I wear, what I eat, what I drink, these things will make me closer to God. These things will make me more spiritual. That's what's at the core of being told to to work this way, to live this way, to eat and drink that way. However, what does the book of Hebrews tell us? These things are of no benefit to do so, to those who do so. No matter what you eat, no matter what you drink, no matter what you don't eat and don't drink, your food and your drink, your diet, your aesthetic will not provide the spiritual nourishment that you need. The other night we were at Carol's last night, 
And don't tell anyone, but on the way home, we got dominoes. I was ashamed to walk in this morning. Now, the night before that, my wife's going red, but to celebrate the end of term, we got KFC. I had to come to church at 6 o'clock to pay a mention. Does what you eat hurt you? Maybe your heart, certainly. But your soul? No, no, no. Where do you get true nourishment from in your soul? We see it through grace. Through God's generosity to undeserving people through Jesus. That's the only thing we need. That's the only thing you have. The third direction I want to point out to you, you see it here from verse 10 onwards, is about sacrifices. Under the Old Covenant, um, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people used to have to offer up animal sacrifices to pay amends for their sins that offer them up at an altar in the temple. But verse 10, what are we told? Christians have a, we have a new altar. Now, that does not mean we have a new altar. version of table to be put at the front of church some churches you will see a table up the front that's not wrong what is wrong is if we call that an altar because the new altar that we as christians have is what you see it in verse 11 verse 12 the new altar we have the perfect altar of the perfect sacrifice is the death of christ he has sacrificed shedding his blood for our salvation so we do not need to continually sacrifice animals to get right with god We don't need another altar. We have the perfect, sufficient, superior altar in the death of Jesus. So what are we then called to sacrifice? Look at verse 15. Through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. We're told that the sacrifice of praise has two different sort of wings to it, if you like. Firstly, with our lips are the things that we say. And then with our actions, the, the good deeds that we do. But I want to make it clear, this is not about singing or charity. Although it may well include singing or charity. We know that because it uses the word continually. This is not saying that you need to continually walk around whistling or singing Amazing Grace all the time. And just giving away money like that. Okay, doing good, doing good, picking up trashes everywhere. You go. It's not saying that, although feel free to do it. This is talking about praise, as we saw at the end of chapter, 28, uh, chapter 12, sorry, verse 28 onwards. Praise as being not something we do at 10.30 on a Sunday morning, but something that captures our lives. A way of viewing life where we see the dominance, the prominence of God in the horizon of our lives. That our lives are about God and everything we do. We live lives of praise. We're so captured by him. So what do we have? Well, you've got leadership, teaching, sacrifices. There are obviously uh, overflowing connections, but it could be possible to see them as reasonably random. However, there is a thread there. I wonder, did you see it? A thread tying all of them together. The thread is Jesus. Have a look at the passage again. See, each direction springs from and connects back to who he is and what he's done. Verse 7, leaders. The leaders are told to speak the word of God. The ones in the past, remember, they spoke the word of God. That's the gospel. The gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 9, don't get sidetracked by strange, erroneous, wrong teaching. Instead, get your strength from grace. The only way you and I receive grace is through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's how we are recipients of God's grace. And then sacrifices. This goes without saying. Verse 10, the new altar, the death of Jesus. Verse 15 says it clearly for us. 
Through Jesus, we offer a sacrifice of praise. That means through what he has done, we no longer need to sacrifice animals. Instead, we praise God as our sacrifice, all only through Jesus. My friends, these are not disconnected. They're not disparate. They're not separate from one another. They're part of something much bigger, do you see it? Something much more, much more bigger than just your actions. Much more profound than trying to impress God by what you do. No, no, no. They are granted again and again in the person of Jesus. Make no mistake. How you and I act, it matters. But it only matters insofar as it relates to God's plan and purpose revealed in who Jesus is and what Jesus does. When I was a kid, the biggest movie going around was Karate Kid. The Karate Kid. Has anyone seen that movie? And the most famous scene in that, of course, is um, Mr. Miyagi teaching young Daniel Russo about um, karate. Okay? And what happens is uh, Daniel's getting bullied. Mr. Miyagi's a karate um, sensei or whatever. And so Daniel goes to him and says, coach me, teach me. And Mr. Miyagi says, yes, I'll go for it. I'm not going to do the accent. I'm so tempted. I won't. Go for it. And so he then gets Daniel to come the next day. Daniel's all ready to go, but he sends him out to the To the car yard. Do you remember this? To do what? Wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off. To wax all these cars. And Daniel's like, what am I? What? We're doing karate. Shut up. Do it. Okay, okay, okay. Okay, then he finishes that. Mr. Miyagi gives him a pot of paint, sends him out, and he's got a... Does he have a line for it? Paint the fence. Paint the fence. Genius lines. Paint the fence. Paint the fence. Paint the fence. Paint the fence. Daniel gets jack of it, as you can imagine. And so he confronts Miyagi and says, Oi, where's my karate lessons? And Miyagi, he goes to strike him and he says, Wax on. And Daniel goes, Boom. Paint the fence. I can't do this to myself. It's very difficult. Jez, could you know I won't do it? Boom. Okay, Jez will kick my butt, so I won't do it. Someone else come forward. Daniel has had no idea that all this time, through all these separate, connected, disconnected little events, this, this, this direction, these commands that he's been following, that he's seen no idea how they connect, that Miyagi has been coaching, training, building, strengthening, and working with a purpose, a purpose that even though Daniel cannot see, is for his good when he sees it. Why are we called to live differently? To act and behave in particular ways. There's no doubt we are. Why does transformation, the transform of life, form such an important part of the Christian message? My friends, it's crucial to understand that the Christian life is not a series of disconnected, random uh, rules and regulations that we do in order to impress God as the school teacher in the sky to give us a a tick of approval. It's not do this, do that, and get rewarded. Who we are to be, how we are to act, the life we are to live, all of it, the way we are to view all of life is to be grounded in and spring from the reality about Jesus, about who he is, truly, and about the very heart of what he's done. So that's what I want to show you here. Because this passage um, does more than give us a hint, but outlines for us um, things about the identity and the mission of Jesus, uh, which are critically important for all of us to understand. So I want to show you both of those things here. Come back to 13. I've just broken my microphone. I do this every week. I'll just leave it. Um, Come back to to, to chapter 13. um, And I want you to look uh, again at verse 7. I want you to think about the identity of Jesus that we see here. Verse 7. 
In verse 7, we're told to remember the leaders because they spoke the word of God to you. As I told you before, um, remembering the leaders means these are leaders who are no longer there in the Hebrew church. However, why are they told to think about them speaking the word of God? Very simply, because the most important thing these people did was have the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of God at the very core and center of the church, of their lives, of what they believed and how they, how they lived. Now, these original leaders were dead, but that made no difference to how the Hebrew believers were told to continue living, or how the Hebrew believers were told to base their lives around. And so in verse 8, they're told, and we are the same, Jesus Christ, you see it, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, hold on to that. Think about it. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. What does that mean? Well, just keep your finger in uh, chapter 13 and come back to chapter 1 of Hebrews for me. Um, Chapter 1 begins in this amazing way in verse 1 about um, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times, but in his last days he has spoken to us by his son and then gives us this outlining of of who Jesus is uh, and what God says about his son. I want you to come to verse 10 onwards, verse 10 Uh, down to uh, to 12. He also says, the Lord also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Jesus does not change. Because he is God. Before the beginning of the creation of the universe, he was there. He will be there after the end. He is God. I'm sorry, I've broken this microphone. Can I go a handheld that one? Just turn that off while I make an idiot of myself. Thank you. Now, what does it mean for the Hebrew church that Jesus is God? What's the context of their church? Do you remember? Facing persecution, pressure inward and outward. They're placing pressure from their families to revert back to Judaism. Persecution is coming and it does come. The horrific persecution of the early church for the first 300 years was devastating. They're facing the same temptations and trials of sin that you and I face as well. So what does it mean for them to remember, to know that Jesus does not change? What it means is that no matter their circumstances, no matter the situation in which they find themselves, Jesus hadn't abandoned them. He wouldn't abandon them. And although everything around them may change and crash against them like waves on the shore, Jesus Christ and his gospel do not. Now for us today, I want you to to understand the implications of, of this truth because they are so critical for us to understand. Jesus Christ is continually unchangeable. What does that mean? It means he is eternally reliable, eternally dependable, eternally merciful, eternally loving. 
You know, one of the things that can so often happen to people, Christian people, is we become Christians, we trust in Jesus as, as Lord and Saviour, but then, well, we, we keep sinning. We find ourselves back in the same old rut or going this way and that way, up and down, up and down. And we project onto Jesus our own natures. How do we act when people wrong us? Well, we give them the cold shoulder. We get jack of it. We get sick of it. We get jack of them. We end up thinking that, well, if I do the right thing, Jesus will love me more and more and more. God will really love me. He might even bless me more. But if I do the wrong thing, we'll, he'll get over me. In fact, it's very possible to think right now you may be thinking, I've done too much. Knowing what I know about Jesus, and I still keep doing that. I've done too much. I've lost what I had. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not like us. We need not fear opinion changes or mood swings in Jesus. Jesus is not surprised by you. He's not shocked by you. He's not depressed by you. It's worth saying he's not impressed by you either, by the way. He loves you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. You can trust him. You can count on him. He will not quit on you. He will never, ever change from being the faithful and dependable saviour that he's always been. He doesn't change. But you see, it's not only who Jesus is that drives us forward in the Christian life. It's also what he has done. What is it that Jesus has done? Well, look at chapter 13. We see it here. Jesus suffered outside the camp, outside the city gates. In verse 10, after being told that Jesus is the new altar, verse 11 says this, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Now, the key words to understanding all of this are outside the camp. In the Old Testament of the Bible, that's an expression used around 20 times in three different contexts. The first context is on the Day of Atonement, a day of sacrifice. The animal would be sacrificed, their blood taken into the temple, but then their body taken outside the camp, outside where the people lived, and the body burned. The other context is when someone was unclean or defiled, they were sent outside the camp, outside where the community of God dwelled. Or if someone had sinned grievously against God, they were banished outside the camp to face judgment, sometimes death. What does outside the camp mean? It means separation. In the Old Testament, separation from God, separation from his people. So what are we told here? Verse 12, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus suffered outside the camp. Abandoned, betrayed, tortured, condemned to death, forced to carry his own cross through Jerusalem, outside the city gates, to a hilltop. A hilltop which in, in, in Aramaic is called uh, Golgotha. In Latin, it's called Calvary. It's a noble sounding word, but do you know what it means? It means the skull. 
And on a hilltop called the skull, Jesus suffers utter disgrace. He is nailed to a cross and killed. He experiences the loneliness and abandonment, the dereliction of the carcass of an animal. He's treated worse than a dog. He's killed. And yet as low as that is, as shameful as that is, it's not the true horror of the cross. In his dying words, he cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus, he took our sin on his soul. He bore our sin and then God poured out his holy wrath on his perfect, unchangeable son. Why? Because Jesus was acting as our substitute. My friends, who is Jesus? The unchangeable God in human flesh. But what does he do? He suffers in our place. He died for people like us, for the spiritually lost, for the greedy, for liars, for the jealous, for the discontent, for the disheartened, for the weak, for the wounded, for the bullied, but also for the bullies, for cowards, for thieves, for the immoral. He died for the divorced. He died for the married, for the single, for the childless, for the childish. He died for rebels and for rejects. He died for sinners. He died to do what, verse 12? To make sinners holy. Not because we are holy by virtue of our actions, but because we're not. This is who God is. Who he is is defined by what he does. He lives and dies to serve. That's Jesus. So what does being a Christian mean to you? What did you say before? I want to make it clear. Um, our actions, our treatment of one another, our devotion to church, to spiritual disciplines, these are wonderful overflow effects of the core, but they're not the core. If you hold them at the core, it's like telling a joke without the punchline. There's no point to it. What would the author to the book of Hebrews say being a Christian means to him? What do you think? It's only one word. Jesus. What is Christianity all about? Jesus. Not your faith in Jesus, your devotion to Jesus. It's not about you. It's him. That's the core. That's the center. And I want to say it's understanding that that enables us to see life completely differently and to live life the way we were designed to. Uh, um, in a moment, I, I want to talk about um, viewing life differently. But before we do, I, I just want to urge all of us to, um, to understand that um, how we understand the center of Christianity is critically important, not just for us, but for every person that we know. It's especially important if you've got ch- for your children, for your grandchildren. Um, it's critical that we understand Jesus at the center of Christianity Because the danger of getting that wrong is deadly. 
The danger of prioritizing the wrong thing is so common and so widespread, it's contagious and it kills. As I said before, by far and away, the most common perception of Christianity that our community has uh, is that we're all about behavior, we're all about morality, we're all about do this, don't do that, rules-based religion. Yes, people will know you believe in God, but there's a whole bunch of other things that you do. Now, tragically, many people who are genuine Christians also feel the same. And because of that, they may be born-again believers who've trusted in Jesus and yet have no assurance, no security, no peace, because your spiritual life is entirely wrapped up in what you do. Oh, sure, I trust in Jesus, but now I've got to, well, now you've got to, um, you've got to take communion. It's got to be with this type of bread and this type of wine. Otherwise, you're out. You've got to be baptized. Not like this, like that. No, no, not like that, like this. Eat this. No, no, eat that. You've got to speak in tongues. If you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. You've got to have a prophecy. You've got to have a vision. Has God spoken audibly to you? If you don't do that, you're, you're not, you've got to read from this type of Bible. No, no, from that type of Bible. Go to church on this day of the week. No, no, that day of the week. You do these things and you're a Christian. If you don't do them, you're lost. My friends, how common do you think that is? It's an epidemic. It's the pandemic. And so you have no peace, no security. Because you'll always fall short of the standard that you set for yourself. None of those things individually or collectively are what Christianity is all about, my dear friends. You can do all of those things endlessly and still not be a Christian. None of them offer the spiritual nourishment that you need. If you've been with us for the past term as we've looked in Hebrews or even if you just looked at the passage today, what does the book of Hebrews tell us again and again and again? Is it the centre of being a Christian? Jesus. The key to life is not what you do. It's in how you see Jesus. It's in being captured by the reality of who he is and what he's done for you. In having a loving relationship with him. Seeing him as the driver of all things that take place. Which enables you, enables you, empowers you, emboldens you to live life the way that Jesus did. To have the perspective of life that he offers completely transform your life. Look at verse 13 and 14. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. To go to Jesus is to see him for who he is. To put your trust in him for what he's done. To take up your cross, to deny yourself daily and to follow him. Yes, it's to turn your back on sin and, and run towards obedience, but make no mistake. This is a call to disgrace yourself. To bear the title Christian in the face of a world that hates us. 
This is a call to let go of the things that consume you in the world and instead be captured by Jesus. Come what may, go to him. How can we do that? Well, the only way we do this is by remembering constantly that through what Jesus has done, we know that this city we live in, this world, is not our home. It's not forever. It will rust and fail and fade and fall. But we live for the city of the future, the enduring one. And we hold to that promise that Jesus gives us with so much substance and, and he gives it to us with, with so much proof and evidence and power that tomorrow's promises dominate today's reality. Living for Jesus, going to Jesus, is seeing him for who he is, trusting in what he's done, and living life through the way and the, and the, and the, and the view that he offers. And I want to say, when you understand that and when you grasp hold of that perspective, how could you live life any differently? Mark Ashton, and I'll, I'll finish with this story. Mark Ashton um, was the minister of one of the, the largest churches in, uh, in England, in Cambridge, when in 2007 he was diagnosed with, with cancer. Um, he, he survived for a few more years, but then died at the age of 62. Uh, before he, he died in his last days on earth, he, uh, he wrote a letter, uh, an open letter uh, for his church, which many other people read, uh, called um, On My Way to Heaven. Now, this is part of what he wrote. I've lived 62 years of a happy life on earth. For over 40 of them, Jesus Christ has been my Lord and my Saviour. I can have no regrets. God has done all things well, and I believe he's doing this thing, cancer, well too. In many ways, I was more ready to die on the 8th of February 1968, the day after my conversion, than now, 40 years later. 40 years later, I can see now that much of what I've striven for and much of what I've allowed to fill my life for those 40 years has been of dubious value. I'm not now going to gain further reputation or achieve anything more significant, but I now realise how little that matters. As I start to collect my effects and count my belongings, I recognise that I have allowed them to clutter my life, but also I've realised how little I actually needed them. Opportunities to tell others about Jesus Christ have become very clear and more urgent when you're a dying man. When you understand the reality of Jesus and the perspective of life that he gives, how else could you live? I need to look to Jesus more and more with every new day, knowing that it will not be all that long before I am removed forever from the presence of sin means I should tolerate it less and less in my life now. It has no place in the presence of God. And I need to prepare myself for that. All of us have an invisible use-by date stamped on us. And I guess we would all live different lives if we knew what that date was. When you understand the reality of Jesus and the perspective of life that he gives, how else could you live? My friends, our time here is short. We don't have long. Eternity is forever. The call of Hebrews again and again and again 
has been to live life that matters, not to be drawn back to the life of the past and pointing us to the way we do that. Telling us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Find our hopes and dreams in him. Find our security and peace in him. Remind ourselves of our salvation in him. The unchangeable God became a man. He died and rose from the dead so we could be saved. When you understand the perspective of life that he offers, how else can we live except to go to the camp and follow him? Let me finish with those words that we've been reading the last few weeks at the very end of chapter 13. From verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, I'm going to give you just a moment now of quiet reflection as the band come up. And I just want to encourage you, just in your silence, uh, to consider what it means for you to go to the Go to the camp, go outside the camp, go to Jesus. Um, what is it you need to leave behind? But also the joy that you find in him. Just take that time and then we'll finish in prayer. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you for your son, Jesus, for who he is and what he has done. Thank you for his death and resurrection by which we may live eternally with you in relationship with you. Father, thank you that Jesus died to forgive our sins, the unchangeable God who is reliable, dependable and merciful. Help us to live our lives not consumed by the things of this world but rather captured by the reality of life that Jesus offers. And for those here who are not Christians, Lord, I pray that maybe even at this moment they will put their trust in you as they realise that Jesus is the only hope they have, but he's the only hope they need. Father, I pray all of this through the name of your Son, the risen King, the Prince of Peace, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.